This morning I want to restart our series on the book of Exodus. Some of you may remember that long ago. We took a pause from our sermon series in Exodus back in March when the coronavirus became front page news across the world. Today I want to return to that series by picking up where we left off in chapter 17 and I want us to look at verses 8 through 16. I want to speak to you from the subject, The Lord Jesus is Our Banner. The Lord Jesus is Our Banner. Let's look at Exodus chapter 17, and I'll begin reading at verse 8. Then Abimelech came and fought against Israel at Rephidium. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men, and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him, and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it the Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. You may recall in chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, Israel as a nation was longing for water and lamenting their neediness and suffering from thirst. They were very ungrateful. Listen to them as they speak to Moses in chapter 17, verse 3. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Then Moses prays, and the Lord very graphically demonstrates his presence with his people, his power to save his people, and his passion for his people. You remember how the story goes. God stands before Moses on the rock and instructs Moses to strike the rock, to really strike the Lord. And then water comes out of the rock and gives his people drink. This is a clear picture, as you know, of Calvary, of the shepherd being struck and it brings healing and brings life and vitality to those his people. 
Jesus is that rock, we are told in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. What this story taught Israel and teaches us is that Israel, after all they had seen from the Lord and experienced from him, still doubted his character and purposes. The question that lied beneath their grumbling and quarreling was this. We see it at the end of that first section in chapter 17. Is the Lord among us or not? We just celebrated the incarnation of God, God appearing in the flesh, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. It was so self-evident and obvious that the Lord was with his people when they came out of Egypt, even when they were in the wilderness. How on earth, of all the questions they could have asked, could they possibly question the Lord's presence with them? But they did. And so do we. That's the problem. Jesus came, lived perfectly, died sacrificially, was buried solemnly, resurrected powerfully, appeared repeatedly to so many eyewitnesses, ascended majestically, was enthroned gloriously, intercedes constantly, sent his spirit dramatically, rules over all sovereignly, renews his mercy daily, providentially exercises his justice supremely, and personally lavishes his grace, promises love on us constantly. And yet we ask, is the Lord among us? We say, Emmanuel, God with us, followed by a question mark. At this point, when Israel's faith is a bit fickle, they are attacked by Amalek. It is the same with us. When doubts arise in your hearts about the Lord, who has more than proven himself, there is a need for your faith to be exercised and strengthened. Just like when you're at the gym, you go there to strengthen what's flaky and flabby. Sometimes our faith gets flaky and flabby, and it needs to be exercised. It needs to be strengthened. And so we're seemingly thrown into trouble, turmoil, suffering. But God's aim, his design for Israel and for us in these final verses of chapter 17, that in our moment of doubt, we would raise our hands to Jesus remind ourselves of what he has already done and offer our hands to him in the service of his kingdom. God's design in the struggle, in the attack, in the trouble, in the suffering is to refine us, to strengthen us, so that the end result would be our hands raised to Jesus reminding ourselves and one another what he already has done and offer our hands again to him in service to his kingdom. Are you longing for refreshment in 2021? Like Israel longed for water in a dry and thirsty land? 
Are you lamenting your troubles and sufferings as you seek to follow Jesus? Are you looking back like Israel did and saying that your past was better than your present and possibly, potentially better than your future life on earth with the Lord will be? Are you judging God's character by your present or past circumstances and condition? These kinds of questions can fracture your faith in Christ, fracture your faithfulness to Christ, and fracture your fight for his kingdom. They are the kind of questions that make you vulnerable to attack by Satan and by those who have no fear of God, but should have every reason to fear God through our witness. That was God's verdict about Amalek. In Deuteronomy 25, it references this very story in Exodus 17, and it says of Amalek, he did not fear God. What a contrast Amalek was with the likes of Rahab or Ruth. Amalek had every reason to fear God. Amalek heard what God had done in Egypt, but refused to fear God. They heard the news. They all knew what the Lord did in Egypt, but Amalek refused to fear. He, he attacked Israel when they were weak and when they were faint. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 25, verse 17 and following. Many of you feel weary. Do you also feel like you are under attack by Satan and even by people who don't know God? Sometimes, like in Israel's case, those who don't fear the Lord, it's partly our fault. God told his people that his name was blasphemed among the Gentiles because they, his own people, were not responding to his grace with gratitude and obedience in their daily lives, bearing witness to the power of God to save. God told his church that many around them did not have faith in Jesus, and it was due to his church's shameful corruption and complacency. When Amalek attacked, it came on the heels of Israel doubting God's presence with her. But when Amalek attacked, Moses commanded Joshua to rally Israel's men to go and fight. There is today, as there was then, a need for men to lead the fight for the kingdom of Christ, to be extended through them and into this world. This does not in any way lessen the key roles that women are called to in advancing the kingdom. There's more to come on that subject. But in the home and in the church, God has called men to lay down their lives sacrificially to serve their families and those in the church in leading the congregation to fight for the kingdom of Christ. In Genesis, we clearly learn prior to our fall into sin 
from Adam's presence with his wife, yet silence in her sinning. How irresponsible, unloving, and unfaithful it is for men to sit silently on the sidelines when they are called to lead their families and the church into the fight for the kingdom of Christ and pursue God's purposes for his praise and for his people. While Joshua led the men to fight for God's kingdom, Moses went up the hill with God's staff in his hand, is the way the Bible says it. The staff in the story of Moses was a reminder to Israel of God's powerful signs given to them in order that they would trust in him. Remember when he first came back from the land of Midian to Egypt to show those signs to his people? It was a reminder also of God's judgment against Egypt and all of God's enemies. Remember, all the gods of Egypt, the false gods, were being judged through the plagues. Every enemy that would attack God's throne, as it were, and attack his people. It also was a reminder of God's power to save dramatically, completely, and sovereignly, despite what opposition stood against his people. When Moses raised this staff, God's staff, it reminded the people how God had worked powerfully to save and judge on their behalf. We also have been given a piece of wood that points to God's power to save and judge on our behalf. We call it the cross of Jesus Christ. It is one of God's greatest signs calling us to faith. It's where every accusation, every judgment against you was put to rest. It is a place where God himself ultimately dances and sings over you with shouts of joy, saying, I have taken away the judgments against you and cleared away your enemies. The Lord is in your midst. Fear not. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you. By his love, he will exalt over you with loud singing. The cross of Christ, where the blood of the Lamb was spilled, is the place where Satan was overwhelmed and is still silenced and overcome when we bear witness and give testimony to Christ and his present unceasing kingdom authority. The power to save is truly signified by the cross of Jesus Christ. And this point is uh, magnified in this passage in verse 11. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. There are a couple things going on here. First, Moses was holding the staff of God in his hands. And when God's staff, the thing pointing and signifying his power to exercise justice 
and salvation is held high and lifted up, it had a direct impact on Israel's ability to overcome their enemies. They overwhelmed them. However, when the staff that signifies God's power to exercise justice and salvation is lowered, it weakens Israel more than a lack of water, and they are no longer able to overcome their foes. This is true for you also. Inasmuch as the cross of Jesus is held high in your thinking, in your heart, being preached to you and preached by you to yourself and one another, you are given the reminder of God's presence with you, his power to save you, his passion for you. You are given in Christ Jesus, crucified and crowned, the foundation for faith in him, the motivation for faithfulness to him, the exemplification for functioning like him as you seek to extend his kingdom with him. The second thing, at the end of this passage, it mentions how Moses' hands were lifted to the throne of God. This should direct our thinking to prayer, intercession on behalf of the gospel of the kingdom of Christ being advanced and extended while you are on earth. You can fill a prayer meeting up when there's a tragedy, which is a good thing. At least when trouble comes, we know where to go. When airplanes fly through buildings, you'd be surprised who shows up at prayer meeting. Six months later, you could throw a handful of rocks out in the pews and wouldn't hit anyone. Moses knew about this personally, and so do we. Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We are not omnipotent. We are weak. You get weary in this battle for Christ and his kingdom. Moses did. It said, Moses' hands grew weary. Moses was weary of standing and weary of holding up the staff. This passage and Jesus' words in Gethsemane to his disciples, weary and sleeping in the battle, are the key. Moses had Aaron and her to support him. Who do you have when you are weary to stand with you and help you raise the standard of the cross of Christ so you and others can make progress in pursuing Christ's kingdom? Ultimately, and thank God for it, you have Christ, whoever lives to intercede on your behalf in the battle. He took his seat not because he was weary, but because he paid your debt fully and accomplished the work necessary for your complete purification, salvation, justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification, you name it, he accomplished it. Christ keeps you steady in the battle. He's the hero. It's not Moses. It's Jesus. He does the work. And by his work, by his word written, and by his words in prayer on your behalf, he keeps you steady. He also keeps you steady, does he not, through his people. We all need an Aaron and a Hur, so to speak, because we are all called to fight for the kingdom together. 
there is no real successful pursuit of the kingdom all by yourself. That's dysfunctional. We're called to pursue the kingdom together. Men and women, boys and girls, however God has identified you, he calls you to seek first his kingdom and righteousness. Even when we doubt, God is designed to stretch our faith by calling us back into the battle where he once again proves his presence with you, his power to save you, and his passion for you to become like Christ and pursue his kingdom. In chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, we see Israel grumbling and quarreling. And yet God, in chapter 17, verses 8 through 16, launches his people right back in the battle again. Because God is determined to work through you, his people. We have no reason to despair. We serve a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose arms are steady. Our arms are unsteady. Moses' arms were unsteady, but Jesus' arms are steady, and they were steady on the cross as he died for our sins. Everything that stood against us, our sins, even his wrath, God's wrath against us, and Satan's dominion over us. Jesus' arms remain steady on that cross to conquer those things and to take that wrath upon himself. He is the true Joshua who not only saves us from our sins, but overwhelms our foes, all of them, by his two-edged sword that we have access to in his holy word. It is his holy word. The psalmist said, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. Then again, he says, and this is Psalm 17, Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. Truly Christ is risen and seeks to confront all of his foes through you with his word, his sword, which brings the aroma of death to those who refuse to repent and believe the gospel, and the aroma of life to all who will repent and place their trust in him. The Lord tells Moses after Amalek's uh, defeat to write it down, to be remembered in a book and recite it in Joshua's ear. Recite this victory in Joshua's ear. And what was the message? The message was this. This is what Moses was supposed to write down. This is what Moses was supposed to tell Joshua. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Again, Amalek, according to Deuteronomy 25, 17 and following, did not fear the Lord. That's literally true. It also is representative of all who do not fear the Lord. They knew, the Amalekites, they knew what the Lord did and could do, but yet refused to repent and believe. 
just like the people of Jericho, but rather attacked those who did repent and believe. Do you ever feel that way? That you've repented and believed in Christ, and yet there are people out there who have seen the power of the gospel, possibly, and, and yet they're the ones attacking you. This is related to God's promise to Abraham and you, his descendants. Because if you believe in Jesus, you're an offspring of Abraham. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. Notice again, uh, this is something the Lord himself will do through the true Joshua, Jesus Christ, and his church, inasmuch as we seek his kingdom and righteousness while we are on earth. Two memories are being dealt with in this passage. Moses is asked to write of God's victory as a memorial in a book and to recite his intention to make his name glorious in Joshua's ears. The point is that God will be remembered down through the ages and generations. The memory of God him being remembered, will so eclipse any memory of his enemies. The memory of his enemies will steadily be blotted out because he will steadily be memorialized. And this occurs, however, when you, his people, cooperate with his purposes in Christ and serve him with the gifts he gives you for his glory, his praise, and the advancement of his kingdom. We should continually pray this in the ears of Jesus, the true Joshua, as we ought to long to see him build his church and make a name for himself through us in this world. The last thing said here is that Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner, Yahweh Nisi. Building this kind of altar was again a way of remembering what the Lord had done and calling God's people to worship and celebrate their one and only hero, the Lord himself. You too have places in your life where God has worked powerfully, do you not? Powerfully to save you and empower you to overcome. You are eyewitnesses. You were there when God worked on your behalf to bring salvation. When you got saved, you were there. You were an eyewitness. You may not have seen Jesus literally, but you were eyewitness in the sense that it happened to you personally. You were the target of Jesus' love and kindness. You experienced his peace and his, his washing you from sin and the clarity, the cleansing of your conscience. And you've been eyewitnesses over the last year of what the Lord has done in your life and over the years of what God has done powerfully in your life. Don't forget it. Tell the story and seal the memory in your mind and in that of others. Let it stir you and others to serve for the kingdom of Christ.
the most fundamental thing that God has done, obviously, again, is he's come to live and die and be raised for his glory and for your salvation. This gospel of the kingdom is our banner. Christ himself is our banner. Christ crucified, Christ crowned, Christ conquering the hearts of men and women through the ministry that he brings through the church. He himself is our banner. He's our standard. He's our king. A banner was something that was usually put on a pole like a flag that an army marched and they had that banner waving saying, this is who we belong to. This is who we serve. Well, Jesus is our banner. He's the one we, we wave because he's the one who hung on a cross for our redemption. He's the one who's loved us. And our call to serve in the kingdom is a call of our loving him in return. Moses says something about the altar he built, which is somewhat ambiguous, but can point to at least three related things. However you translate this passage first, uh, we must constantly hold up the standard of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his kingdom in life and in witness with our lips. Second, we must continually pray, beseeching Jesus to extend his reign through us into the hearts and lives of others. God is thoroughly committed to working through you to advance his kingdom. God doesn't need anyone. But the way God has designed the progress of the kingdom is he works through his holy congregation. And the third thing is that God will constantly war against any and all who seek to challenge his reign in Christ and disregard his redemptive work through him. Every hand, as it were, against his throne. He will war against that hand, so to speak. Every challenge to the reign of Christ. Everyone who disregards the cross of Christ. God will constantly war against those. Until their knees also bend. And their tongues also confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ will build his church, and Hades' gates won't win. They won't prevail. Are you ready in 2021 to serve on behalf of the kingdom, to serve on behalf of the gospel, to hold up that, as the songwriter used to say, that blood-stained banner until you die? ready to serve for the glory of Christ, for the glory of his kingdom, for his praise, for his fame, so that in your life, Christ would make a name for himself, a name for his power to save, a name for his power over all. Let's be used this year to make Jesus' name famous wherever we set our foot. The Lord is Jesus, is our banner forever.
Blessed be his name. God bless you.